Shabbat Shalom, everyone. It's so good to be with you again. It's been a few months, and we are glad to be back. This is, this is I believe, our fourth time here, and uh, we love being with you all. So uh, look forward to sharing a few thoughts this morning from, from the Word and really in connection with the season that we're in right now. And so I'd like to ask you to turn to Psalm 122, and let's pray. Abba, Father, we thank you so much for the gift of Shabbat that we, we are permitted and invited to come into your presence to experience your reality in a, in, in, a, in a deeper and focused way. We thank you for your presence, that you are here with us. And so, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I ask that you would speak to us, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might know your ways more and more clearly. And we thank you, God, for your Work in our lives, the Shem Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, well, yesterday, actually, beginning Thursday night, Thursday evening, Jewish people and, and believers throughout the world celebrated really a great event in the history of modern Israel. And I'm speaking of a day called Jerusalem Day, or Yom Yerushalayim. It celebrates Israel's miraculous victory in the Six-Day War of 1967, and a a victory which resulted in the reunification of the city of Jerusalem, uh, bringing it back into uh, Jewish oversight. And... um, Also going on right now is the historic 21-day Isaiah 62 fast in which millions, the the last figure I heard was over 5 million believers throughout the world are participating in this with focused prayer for the salvation of Israel and the Jewish people. And so this morning I want to share some thoughts on specifically on the biblical importance of Jerusalem and to consider some things that you've likely heard before, but I think that we'll look at it in a little bit different context today than perhaps you've seen it in the past. Clearly, we are living in a time in which there is much debate and much disagreement in relation to Jerusalem. Who should govern Jerusalem? Who does the city even belong to? And it's only, I mean, many, many questions, many, many issues of division. And it's, it's only as we understand the biblical importance of Jerusalem that we can see why this city is actually a source of such passionate debate and disagreement, and even conflict. God himself has specific plans and intentions related to Jerusalem. And so I want to take a look at this to get a sense of Jerusalem's importance in the ultimate kingdom purposes of God. Jerusalem is actually at the center of God's heart for world redemption. And as we come to understand this, it should help us to see why there's such great battle today over the city of Jerusalem. Why there is such spiritual warfare against the Jewish people there. So hopefully you've found Psalm 122. And it's a passage we read often and cite often, but I'm going to focus on a specific verse that's a little different than what we might usually focus on. Beginning at verse 1, a song of ascents, 
of David. I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go to the house of Adonai. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city joined together. There the, there the tribes go up, the tribes of Adonai, as a testimony to Israel to praise the name of Adonai. For there thrones of judgment are set up, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be at peace. Well, I was looking at this, I was reading this psalm some time ago, and I I actually was focusing on verse 3, and just thinking about the wording that Jerusalem is built as a city that it says is joined together. The word translated joined actually comes from the Hebrew word chaver, which means friendship. And so, of course, it's a word that implies a bringing together of people. That's what friendship does. Well, I was thinking that is God's purpose for Jerusalem. It's a city meant for the bringing together of people. And so then I looked at another translation, uh, David Stern's Complete Jewish Bible Translation, just to see what he had to say. And he translated it this way. The wording he used was, Jerusalem built as a city fostering friendship and unity. Now, why is this important? It's important because it shows God's intent for Jerusalem to be the city central in unifying the nations of the earth. How ironic that is. God has had Jerusalem in mind from the very beginnings of his plan for bringing his kingdom to this earth and banishing Satan and all of his forces of darkness. Jerusalem is key to that. This is the destiny of Jerusalem, even as its very name tells us from the Hebrew, Yerushalayim, foundations of peace. God has this destiny for Jerusalem. And so it really should not be a surprise to us when we see the conflict that has characterized this city's history, even though that conflict would seem to be opposed to the actual purposes of God. But we shouldn't be surprised. Why? Because what God plans, Satan opposes. Does it make sense? What God plans, Satan comes against. He cannot ultimately prevail, but he does oppose the plans of God. Now, I want to develop this idea a little bit because we're to see that God's work of salvation as it's taught through the Bible is really so much bigger than just the idea of you and me as individuals coming into faith, coming into relationship with God, and yes, spending eternity with God. Well, that's central, that's central in God's plan, but really we need to understand our individual salvation as something, as, and, and salvation itself as something that impacts the whole earth, the whole order of creation. So as God is seeking to bring his work of restoration to humanity, And then, as God is also seeking to bring restoration even to this earth, to to all creation. You may recall Romans 8, Paul cites the fact that all of creation, creation itself, is groaning with birth pangs together, waiting for for the fullness of God's purposes to be established on the earth. Somehow Jerusalem is a key to this this whole picture of God bringing restoration to all of his creation. Now, what I want to do this morning is to quickly touch on what I would call 10 key events 
of salvation history and to show you that Jerusalem is central to each one of these key events. We're going to look at each of them. We're going to look at most of them very quickly. A few of them we'll spend a little bit more time with. So let's consider the 10 key events of salvation history and see how each one is tied to Jerusalem. And by the way, we could probably include other things beyond these 10. I'm sure we could. But as I, as I was thinking and praying about this, I felt like these were the 10 things that the Lord highlighted as key to his salvation purposes. Number one, the initial event of salvation history was the creation of the Garden of Eden and the placing of Adam and later Eve in that garden. It was there that God placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was there that Adam and Eve enjoyed fellowship with God. It was from there that Adam and Eve were to rule the earth, to have dominion over all the earth. The Garden of Eden was the center of created life. But then it also became the place where man yielded to sin, giving authority to the devil who, who became with that authority the ruler of this world in this present age. Now you may be thinking, well, what does the Garden of Eden have to do with Jerusalem? So I personally believe, and I'm not dogmatic about it, but I believe that the evidence leans towards this pretty strongly, that the Garden of Eden was located in what we now know to be Jerusalem. This didn't begin with me. Other people have taught this. Theologians, some theologians, hold to this view. And in a few minutes, I'll share a little more fully why I believe this is, this is true. But just to address a couple of things initially. Many believe that the garden was located much further east from Jerusalem. And they, they point to the reference in Genesis to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. But the Bible does not say that the garden was located at the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. What it says is there flowed out from the garden a river that itself parted and eventually formed four more rivers, among them the Tigris and Euphrates. Now, if you look at a map today, there are no rivers coming out of Jerusalem that could eventually form into the other four rivers that are mentioned in Genesis. But think about it. Genesis 2.10 says that this river flowed to water the garden. And then... It says it also went further and parted to become four other rivers. Well, what happened to the garden after Adam and Eve sinned and were driven out? It says that God set cherubim around the garden to keep Adam and Eve from getting back in. Now, we can assume that over time, the garden died out because it's never accessed again by man, and there's no reference to it even existing after Genesis chapter 3. Well, how do you cause a garden to die? You cut off its water supply. So I have no problem believing that God could have caused that river that watered the garden to completely dry up to the point that there is no physical evidence of that river today with the result being that the garden died out and disappeared. Now, I fully realize what I'm saying here doesn't prove anything. But it does give us a basis for considering that, okay, it's not impossible for Jerusalem to have been the location of the garden. And we'll see a little bit later while I actually believe it has to be the location of the Garden of Eden. So assuming this theory is correct, we have the initial event of salvation history and even human history itself beginning with Jerusalem. Man living in fellowship with God in the garden and ruling the earth 
from the garden, at least that was the intent. And that taking place in what is now Jerusalem. Okay, number two, second key event in salvation history. And that's, that is the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. Perhaps you remember the story. Abraham and Sarah were childless. Sarah was barren. She could not have children. But God said, no, you will be the father of many nations. And, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And of course, they waited decades for this. But God worked this miraculous work to give them that child, Isaac. And then, of course, when Isaac was a, was a, a young man, some say in his early teens, some, teens, some say mid, mid or late teens, we don't know for sure, but he was a young man. He wasn't just a little, little child. God comes to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 22. And he says, I want you to take your son to a place that I'll show you. The son whom you love. The son, this, miraculous, this miraculously born son. And bring him as an offering. So, God leads him to Mount Moriah, which is known to be among the mountains of Jerusalem. Well, this was the key event in God making covenant with Abraham and Abraham responding to the covenant by offering up his only son. Obviously, we know the, knowing the end of the story, we know he actually did not sacrifice Isaac, but he was ready to. He offered him to the Lord. What's crucial in this event is the principle of priestly intercession. See, God works in redemptive ways in this world based on the principle of priestly intercession. In other words, God is seeking people who in faith would come into a place of agreement with God, a covenant partnership with God, we could say. And of course, Abraham, going back to Genesis 12, repeated in 15 and 17, Abraham accepted God's invitation to come into this covenant partnership with the Lord so that God would work through Abraham to bring blessing and redemption to the world. But we need to understand how covenant was seen in that day because it's really very different from the way people understand, say, agreements today or contracts today. Covenant is a much deeper thing. But in that day, the way it was understood, if two parties would enter into covenant together, the idea was everything you have is now mine and everything I have belongs to you. In covenant partnership, one had the right to require of the other the most important and valuable thing in their life. So God tells Abraham, take your son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham, in obedience to God, shows his willingness to give up his only son whose birth we know was a miracle from God. But now here's what we need to see. Abraham's willingness to give up to God what was most precious to him, this was the ultimate act of faith obedience to which God himself would then respond by giving his son for the salvation of the world. Friends, God is looking for a people of faith. And God responds to the faith of his people here on the earth. God was planning to give his best, his only son, for the salvation of the world. But he is looking for a covenant partner. And so he had to find a man who would show his own commitment and his own faith and covenant loyalty by his willingness to do the same. Do you see? To give up most, the most precious thing in his life, his only son. Why? Because that's how covenant worked. As the two parties to a covenant had to be equally committed 
okay? Understand, God says, I will do all the miraculous things that will need to be done for this covenant to be fulfilled, but Abraham, you've got to be equally committed. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. So Abraham showed his own commitment to the covenant with his willingness to do the very same thing that God himself was planning to do a couple thousand years later. And the parallels between Isaac and Yeshua are so powerful. I mean, we don't have time to get into the detail of it, but even down to the point of Isaac carrying the wood that was to be burned for the offering, just as Yeshua would carry the cross, the tree, the wood to which he would be nailed. So in Jerusalem, or what would become Jerusalem, the sacrifice of Isaac was the key event that really set things in motion spiritually, allowing for God to move forward with his plan to send his own son for the salvation of the world. Number three, Jerusalem was the location for the temple that would be built many many centuries later. The temple was foundational in salvation history because it was the center of the whole priestly system of, of blood sacrifices. Sacrifices that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice to be made by Yeshua himself. But sacrifices that also were part of Israel functioning as a priestly nation on behalf of all the nations of the world, realized that that the thousands and thousands of sacrifices and offerings that took place in that temple for all those years were something that God looked to as a basis for holding back the judgment that the world has deserved, Israel included. So the temple we know was in Jerusalem, at or near the place on Mount Moriah where Abraham brought Isaac for sacrifice. Second Chronicles 3 tells us that Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah, where God had also appeared to David and, of course, Abraham generations earlier. Now, related to this is the whole idea of God identifying Jerusalem dozens of times in the Hebrew Scriptures as the only place on earth where His own name would reside. We see this in 1 Kings 8.16. We see it in 2 Chronicles 6.6 and many other references, references to this idea. Jerusalem was the place where God's name would reside. And it's related to the temple, the sacrifices, which allowed for God's presence to be there among his people. So that's number three. Number four, Jerusalem was the place where Yeshua was crucified and resurrected. This is obviously the the ultimate event that has taken place thus far in salvation history. Yeshua dies for the sins of humanity. His blood is shed and the power of sin is broken as he lays down his life on the cross. Now, the issue of the cross is important here because we know that the Romans formed the wood into the shape of a cross. But the idea here is that Yeshua was nailed to a tree. Why is that important? Well, it was at the place of a tree that Adam and Eve disobeyed. Remember, they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There they disobeyed and brought the curse of sin to the world. But in order to fulfill all righteousness, Yeshua goes back to the place of a tree in order to reverse the disobedience of Adam. Now, I'm not not suggesting it was the same tree. 
But the, but the point is, this is a principle of how God works in the process of redemption and restoration. God requires that we go back to the source in dealing with the problem of sin. Adam ate from the tree and brought the curse upon all mankind. So in reversing that curse, Yeshua goes back to a tree where he would pay the price for sin and break the power of that curse forever. This too took place in Jerusalem, which is one reason, and I'll share more a bit later, but one reason why I believe that the Garden of Eden was in Jerusalem. See, in order to redeem, God goes back to where the problem began to deal with the problem at at its roots. Sin came into the world at the place of the Garden of Eden. And so the power of sin was broken, I believe, at the location of the Garden of Eden. As I said, we'll get to a little bit more later on that. Number five. Jerusalem was the place where the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples on the day of Shavuot, Acts chapter 2. We'll be celebrating that next week. Again, this is a key event in salvation history, making a beginning, marking a beginning stage of God rejoining heaven and earth as heaven's power, the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the power of the Holy Spirit, comes upon human beings, not just an occasional time upon certain leaders of Israel, but upon all believers, bringing together heaven and earth in us. It's this outpouring of the Spirit that makes it possible for man in covenant with God through Yeshua, for man to actually do the works of Yeshua as we receive His presence, we receive His empowerment. So, Jerusalem was the place for the outpouring of God's power prophesied in Joel chapter 2. Number six, Jerusalem was the center from which world evangelism would begin. Remember, Yeshua said to his disciples, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, but then he took it a step further, and Samaria, and then another step further, a big step further, he said, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the way Yeshua states it there in Acts chapter 1-8, Jerusalem is the center. It's the starting point. It begins in Jerusalem. It flows outward to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's a key event in salvation history as these instructions of Yeshua to go to the nations of the earth become the basis for taking the covenant that God had made with Israel and bringing the blessings of that covenant to the nations. Number seven, Jerusalem is key in relation to what the New Testament refers to as the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. Luke chapter 21, verse 24, Yeshua makes a crucial statement. He says, Jerusalem would be be trodden down by the Gentiles, or under Gentile rule and control, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, 1967 marks that time of the beginning of the fullness of the Gentiles. The beginning, because I feel like it's a, my opinion is that the fullness of the Gentiles is not a sudden event. It's a process that began with Jerusalem coming back into the hands of Jewish people. So, Jerusalem coming back into Jewish hands, it's that event that marks this time that Yeshua referred to as the fullness of the Gentiles. Now, Paul 
refers to the fullness of the Gentiles as well in Romans chapter 11.25. But Paul brings out something different. He says there would be a spiritual blindness over the eyes of Jewish people until this fullness of the Gentile comes in. So what we see in putting Yeshua's and Paul's statements together is that when Jerusalem would come back into the hands of the Jewish people, that event would mark the beginning of a latter-day spiritual renewal among the Jewish people. And history attests to this. It was in 1967 that Jerusalem comes back into the hands of the Jewish people, and it's in that year or the, the early years following that that really marks the beginnings of the modern-day Messianic movement. I would say a majority of the leaders in the Messianic movement today came to faith during that post-1967 period. It was a revival period. Some of you have probably seen the movie um, Jesus Revolution, that's right. How many have had a chance to see that? Just, it's a really encouraging movie. I encourage, you, I encourage you to see it. First time we've been to a movie theater in probably 10 years, so it was worth it for this. But, but it was really out from that Jesus revival that so many Jewish people got saved, myself included, although it was a few years later. It was 1975 that I came to faith. But it began in 67. All right, number eight. Jerusalem is at the very center of, it's the focus of the hatred of the world. A rage that's almost irrational in its intensity. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah 12, verse 2. Behold, this is the Lord speaking through the prophet, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of reeling to all the surrounding peoples when they besiege Jerusalem as well as Judah. Moreover, in that day, I will make Jerusalem a massive stone for all the people. All who try to lift it will be cut to pieces. Nevertheless, all the nations of the earth will be gathered together against her, meaning against Jerusalem. You may wonder, how is this related to salvation history? Well, it's related because it's the nations raging against Israel to the point of coming to attack Israel. All the nations turning against Jerusalem to battle, that is what provides the background for Zechariah 14, 3 and 4, where it, then, where it says that then, at that point, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. You see, it's the nation having reached that point in their opposition to Israel with Jerusalem being the key issue. That's what results in Yeshua returning See it pictured in in Revelation 19. Yeshua returning to execute God's vengeance against the nations. Leading us into number nine. And that is, Jerusalem is the place where Yeshua will return and establish his throne. And from there, he will rule the nations for a thousand years. Jerusalem is the place of the rule and reign of the King of Kings. Turn to Matthew chapter 23, a passage you're likely familiar with. Yeshua is speaking, and he's speaking to the religious leaders of his day in Jerusalem. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you 
you will not see me again until you say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, again, what's the point of this? Well, Yeshua is speaking to religious leaders. And he is saying, until you come to the point where you as the leaders of Israel are willing to call for me to return and rule over you, I'm not coming coming back until you do that. Why is that even necessary? Because it's it's a covenant issue. It's a covenant issue. Washington, D.C. cannot call for Yeshua to come and rule over Jerusalem. Paris, France, name every other city in the world, there's only one that can. The leaders of Jerusalem must call for Yeshua to come because they're calling for him to come and rule as king. It has to be the leaders. That's a covenant issue. The point is, Jewish people must be in the land and calling for Yeshua to return before he will come back to rule as king. And this is one reason why the devil fights so hard to turn the nations against Israel and try to get Israel to give up Jerusalem. If the Jewish people are not in Israel, I'm not saying every Jewish person alive, but a large number of Jewish people in Israel getting saved and calling his, for his return, he's not returning until that's happening. I'd say that's worth praying about. This is the awesome event that we all look forward to as Yeshua comes in power to overcome the kingdoms of this world and to establish His rule over the nations. Revelation 11 tells us it will be proclaimed. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He will reign over all the earth. Yeshua will return. He will set up his kingdom and rule this earth from the city of Jerusalem. But it doesn't end there because there's one last event, and that's number 10. Jerusalem will be the center of the new heavens and the new earth. I'm going to read a couple of passages from Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation 21, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then moving down to verse 10. Then he carried me away in the Ruach to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. He then goes on to write in chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing down the middle of the city street. On either side of the river was a tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in the city, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Night shall be no more, and people will have no need for lamplight or sunlight, for Adonai Elohim will shine on them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Yeshua will have reigned from Jerusalem for a thousand years. The devil will 
have been bound for that time, but then he's released for a brief season. I don't understand why, but that's how, that's how it's laid out. And then Revelation chapter 20, the devil's rebellion is crushed. He's thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. And then the ultimate event of God's plan of redemption, the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavenly Jerusalem comes down from above. God, it says, will make all things new. Every fear will be wiped away. Death and disease forever banished from the human race. The completion of God bringing together heaven and earth, Ephesians 1.10. That will come to pass. God's work to restore everything corrupted by the fall, that work will be complete. The redemptive process, it all comes to its conclusion in Jerusalem. And that's why I believe it, it had to have begun in Jerusalem. See, that's the nature of God's redemptive patterns. God goes back to the point where sin came into the picture, and step by step, he redeems it all. See, the Bible is essentially the story of God's work to bring redemption and restoration to humanity and to all creation. We see this idea throughout the scriptures that God redeems and he restores. And so to me, as we consider this key theme of the Bible, it makes no sense to think that God would have just destroyed the original Garden of Eden and then start over again in a different location. It makes no sense that the garden was, would have been further east originally, but then at the end, God starts it over in a new location called New Jerusalem. Why? Because God's pattern throughout Scripture is to redeem and restore, and locations are very important. Land, territory is important in God's purposes. So, Look at what we find in the midst of the New Jerusalem. We see the river of life flowing out from it, just like that river flowed out from the Garden of Eden in Genesis. We see in Revelation 22, the tree of life. It's the restoration of the Garden of Eden, and it just makes sense that it's restored in the same place where it began, you see? With the tree of life right in its center. Think about the imagery here at the close of the book of Revelation. It's so similar to the imagery we see in the early chapters of Genesis where the garden is described. Clearly, the new Jerusalem is to be understood as being the restoration of the Garden of Eden. Otherwise, I don't think the Bible would use the specific language we find in Revelation 21 and 22. Does that make sense? So, Jerusalem will be the place of the restoration of the Garden of Eden, the restoration of paradise. And I think it's reasonable to assume that if the new Jerusalem is the place of the restored Garden of Eden, then it just makes sense that there would be a connection between Jerusalem and the original Garden of Eden began in the location of Jerusalem comes full circle and we find a restored Garden of Eden in the very same location. Friends, Jerusalem is central. We could have named other, other events as well, but it's central to every key step in God's redemptive purposes for mankind and for the earth itself. We long for that day when Yeshua returns. We long for that day when he begins his reign from Jerusalem and then ultimately when he brings restoration and transformation to this corrupt earth. A new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where righteousness reigns. The Garden of Eden restored with the tree of life in the midst of the new Jerusalem. 
and the sign that we are really getting close? The simple reality of Jewish people coming back to Israel. Jewish people coming back to Jerusalem specifically. Psalm 102, verse 16. If you translate kind of word for word from the Hebrew text, it reads, When the Lord builds up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. When he builds up Zion, he will appear in his glory. So as we see the restoration of Jewish people in Israel, the building up of Zion, it cannot be very far off when the Lord Yeshua himself will appear in his glory. By not far off, by the way. I'm not saying it's next month. I'm not saying it's next year. It could be 10 years, 20. I don't know. That's not the point. The point isn't to try to figure out when. The point is to do what he's calling us to do and be what he's calling us to be until he comes. God is getting ready to return. And yet at the same time, the world's opposition against Israel and her rights to Jerusalem, that opposition is clearly increasing. As the nations rage against Israel and against God himself. God will establish the throne of the King of Kings to set up that throne in Jerusalem and to bring us into the age to come. This is what puts fear and terror into the devil. But at the same time, it should cause joy and gladness, faith and encouragement to overflow in the hearts of every believer as we see the hour in which we live. Jerusalem is the focal point of the devil's rage in so many ways. Why? Because it's the focal point of God's redemptive purposes as well. It's the focal point of God bringing His kingdom in fullness to the earth as He will bring to completion His great plan for world redemption. God will finish what He has begun. Now, one more, just one last point that I want to make. It's important to make. It's important to say something regarding God's work among the nations, the Gentiles. I focused this morning on Israel and the Jewish people specifically, not to try to suggest that Israel is the only issue of importance, or not to try to suggest that Jewish people are more important than Gentiles. No, but rather... It's about God having a set covenant order for how he does things. And Israel is right in the center of his plan for redeeming nations, you see? And that is the priority of God's heart. There must be a Jewish people in their Jewish homeland calling for their Messiah to return and to rule from Jerusalem. This is all clear from the prophets as well as from the New Testament. It's not that the Jewish people are any better or more important. This is just the covenant order by which God has set things up. And so that's the way he's going to do it. The whole plan of God for world redemption ends up unfolding through Israel as a people and a nation. Friends, when we understand that Yeshua's return, his rule, his reign, the ultimate restoration of the earth, that Yeshua's, when we understand that Yeshua's return is what's at stake in relation to Israel and the Jewish people being in their land, it should open our eyes to see more clearly the spiritual reality behind the natural events of our day. The irrational hatred of Israel. It's irrational. It doesn't make sense. So, we should be passionate about Jerusalem. As God has chosen that city, flaws included, 
The Jewish people are a flawed people. Israel is a flawed nation at this point in time. Just as we all are still a flawed people raised up by his grace into something special. That God's redemptive plan for the human race comes to its culmination in Jerusalem. That's where Isaiah could write. Isaiah chapter 62, it's, part, it's related to the, it's kind of the foundational passage to the fast that so many, that over five million are taking part in right now. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Lord, we we thank you that you are a master planner. That you have a plan in place and every detail of it is coming to pass and will come come to pass. Father, we're asking today that you would fulfill your plan for Jerusalem to be the city that does foster the unity of the people throughout the earth under the rule and kingship of Messiah Yeshua. We pray for Israel today. We join with the millions who are praying at this point in time for protection over Israel, for blessing over that nation, and for salvation to flourish over the nation of Israel. Pour out your spirit and power, Lord. We pray for that remnant already in the land, O God. We lift them before you and we pray for strengthening. We pray for encouraging. We pray for the outpouring of signs and wonders upon believers that would would gain the attention of the unbelieving majority and that many would come to faith. We pray for a release, Lord, of dreams visions on unsaved Israelis, as well as Arabs in Israel, bring people to, to, the, to a revelation of your son, to, to embracing your salvation. We thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what's coming of this, from this time of, of prayer and from this time of, of intercession, these 21 days. And may we see just Awesome things with our own eyes coming forth in the days to come. Let Jerusalem be in our hearts, Lord, that we would pray for her. B'Shem Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Wife has Thank you. Hallelujah. There's a couple of things that the Lord has laid on my heart for you all. And one of the things is based on the uh, scripture in Zechariah, when all nations come against Israel. And that the Lord has showed me that you as a messianic congregation have a unique place in the call that God has for the world. That all the messianic Jewish congregations are made up of Jew and Gentile. And that how important that is. And how that is strategic, how that is strategic in God's plan that he is that all nations are going to come against Israel but the gentiles are the ones the gentile believers are the ones that are going to stand by Israel and how important that is because that's what the scriptures are talking about that we are all one that we're all in unity and the en- and the enemy wants 
to divide us. The enemy wants to stop us from being unified. And so the word that I feel like the Lord is giving me is guard against that. Don't allow the enemy to get a foothold at all in dividing the Jew and the Gentile. You all are unique, and you all have a unique calling. The Jewish people have a unique calling, and the Gentiles have a unique calling, and that we are to be one, unique but one. Anyway, that was part of it. The other thing that the Lord gave me, I wrote it out so that I'll get it right. Lighten the load of uncertainty. I am calling you to go to a deeper place of intimacy with me. It is time to take your relationship with me to a deeper level. Seek my spirit for guidance. This is not a time to rush, linger in my presence, and wait on me for deeper revelation. Now is the time to move forward. No longer will you say, someday we'll do such and such. It is time to step out and do the things that are on your heart. I have given you these dreams and desires to do many things, but the enemy desires to divide you and bring you discouragement and blur the vision. Take your place and enter the race again. Bring my vision back into focus. There are many new places I will open to you. Be alert and watch for signs. I am opening ways for you to touch the hearts of the needy and the lost. The time is short and there is much to do. Some of you have lost hope, but I am here to tell you that my way will come to pass. And then he gave me the scripture in Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is rising, is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen among you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for the anointing that this congregation has, this unique anointing to reach out and to touch lives. Jews and Gentile, what, what a testimony, worshiping as one. And we thank you, Lord God, for your plan. We thank you, Lord God, for your anointing. And we pray, just as you said in this word, we pray for more revelation from your spirit. Give us more revelation in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you, Rabbi Jerry. Thank you for your words on Jerusalem. Thank you, Joe, for your prophetic word with us today. Um, you know, and as, I, as an extension of this, I'm, I'm just also thinking about our Shavuot gathering that's coming up soon, um, next Saturday evening. Uh, we're going to uh, have a, an extended time of praise, an extended time of prayer uh, after the, the main Shavuot service. Um, which is going to begin at 7 again, um, not 7.30, but 7 o'clock. Um, we're going to have an extended time of praise and prayer um, and worship, and, and it's going to go into the night. Um, and it's going to be exciting, and, uh, and we're going to culminate with a live stream from Jerusalem. It's going to be 10 a.m. Jerusalem time which is, guess what time it is here? 2 a.m. Starts at 2 a.m. and goes to 4 a.m. 
live stream from the southern steps of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, uh, and, and leaders gathering, leaders from Israel gathering together to call on the name of the Lord together there for the salvation of the people. Now, we can pray also that that would extend to, you know, other leaders within Jerusalem, other, other Jewish people who are not yet believers, um, those who may be um, important in their local synagogues or in to the uh, political environment in Jerusalem as well, to those who are in the Knesset as well, that they would also be convicted by the Holy Spirit to come and to be part of, if it, if it be his will this week, but soon, Lord, would it be soon, and that we can pray for that together with the leaders there. So that's going to be next Saturday evening. Um, so I would encourage you to come. And now, I know some of you may not be able to stay up all night. I get that. Uh, but come and, and pray with us. Be here for Shavuot and, uh, and, and, and look forward again to the salvation of all of Israel and to the return of our Messiah, Yeshua. Amen? Hallelujah. All right, well, I would like to ask a couple people to grab the, the Kiddush table. And uh, and come and you can all come forward and grab the juice and the bread, and uh, we will say the kiddush blessings together as we finish up this morning. <laughs>